Hi all, I'm Amy from Bruja and welcome to Brew Happy, the podcast that invites you to be part of a conversation. We're looking at how marketing companies and professionals can consider the bigger picture rather than being entirely focused on product, copy and deliverables, and all in the time that it takes to brew and enjoy a cup of tea or coffee. So pop the kettle on and we'll get started. The topic of social housing is intrinsically tied to politics, and this week we have the distinct pleasure of having David Locke QC as a guest on the podcast. David is currently the head of Landmark Chambers' public law practice groups, in which he specialises in public law and health. He was appointed as a deputy high court judge last year, and on the political side of things, David was an MP for the Wire Forest constituency between 97 and 2001, as well as being a minister between 1999 and 2001. I also happen to know that he bakes a bloody good loaf of bread. <laughs> David, thank you so much for joining us. What made you take an interest in politics and what was it that spurred you to take a more active role? Well I've always been interested in social justice. I became a practicing lawyer in uh, 1987 and gradually uh, did more and more cases, a lot of cases involving housing and realized that lawyers could only do so much but essentially it was politicians that set the rules by which the law operates. And therefore, if you wanted to change the structure, change the balance between different legitimate interest groups, landlords and tenants, employers, employees, um, developers and the environment, what you had to do was to become a politician and not simply be a lawyer giving effect to the rules that the politicians decided. So that's more or less what took me down the political route. In a very simplistic way, I can see that there's three considerations that have played a, a significant role in the political changes regarding social housing. Uh, you've got the nature and visibility of the issue itself. You have the general interest and aspirations of the voters. And you've also got the changes in political and economic ideology within the country. What do you think? Well, social housing is one of these areas, and there are a number of areas in society, where the market works for the majority, but doesn't work for the minority. And therefore, if you want to ensure that all your citizens in a country have a reasonable standard of housing, you have to accept that the, the market, pure and simple, will not deliver for the bottom 20%. Mm in socio-economic terms and therefore the government has to intervene and has to operate in a, in a variety of ways to affect the ability of those at the bottom end of society so that they can get decent housing and we do the government does this through a variety of means it does it through housing benefit uh, it does it through it used to do it through rent controls and it does it through facilitating the building of social housing and the creation of social landlords who effectively operate within a quasi-market but serving a constituency that requires a greater or lesser degree of public subsidy in order to be able to function. So specifically, looking at your time as an MP, what were your experiences of social housing within your own constituency? Well, what had happened in the last in the 20 years before um, I became a Member of Parliament, was that 
the main providers of social housing moved from being local authorities who were elected bodies to housing associations um, that were set up as non-profit organisations to run a mixture of former local authority stock of housing mm. and to create new housing units of, of themselves. And therefore housing was to some extent taken arm's length away from the control of local authorities, put into the control of, of housing associations. And therefore the tensions, the political tensions, were about how much political control should there be, if any, over housing associations in using the subsidy that was available to them to deliver on this social purpose. And that was quite an interesting tension because on the one hand you wanted to encourage responsible tenants, you wanted to, which that meant they had to have the right to um, uh, seek possession against tenants that didn't pay their, pay their rent. But then those people became homeless. And the question is, to what extent did, did society have a duty to house the homeless in those circumstances? Um, to what extent uh, were, were the homeless facilitated to move off the streets and almost inevitably into some form of social rented housing? And how much subsidy? What are the, what are the levers that you could pull as a government to, to make the maximum impact with responsible use of public funds. Marx states that social housing can only work in a space without capitalism. I know that, for example, Labour's most recent housing policy blends capitalism with a strong emphasis on the cyclical nature of economical support of the community. Do you think this blended approach is the best way forward, or is there grounds to Marx's doctrine? Well... I now sit as a judge, and therefore any comments I make about political matters are have to be somewhat tempered. But let me give you my personal view without ascribing it to any political party. The, the concept of a Marxist doctrine essentially succeeding is, is a theory which has been failed in, 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 in every attempt that's been made. And therefore, a pure Marxist solution to any problem um, is attempting to follow a course where nobody has successfully followed that course for a whole variety of reasons. We don't need to go into why, why it's been unsuccessful as an economic model. Therefore, some form of regulated capitalism is the only effective model the 21st century has enabled anyone to deliver um, economic prosperity. Social housing requires an element of public subsidy. That means there's an element where the, well, the more well-off in society through their taxes are subsidising the less well-off in order to ensure that society isn't left with the conscience of people in poor housing. That's more or less what drives most political parties to a greater or lesser extent. Um, also, capitalism is by virtue inevitably cyclical, as, as, as you rightly said in the, in the question, and therefore the poor need most protection from the cycles because it's the poor that suffer most mm. during any downturn. It's the poor that suffered following the crash in 2008. It's those people who are on zero-hours contracts 
or who are employed who are suffering most in the coronavirus. So in terms of social housing, when you, you ask what is the model that works, it cannot be a purely non-market-based model because essentially you have to persuade people to pay their rent. You have to persuade people to abide by the, the terms of their tenancies, not to have, not to act in an antisocial way, not to play loud music to upset their neighbours, to respect the environment in which they live. Because there's a mutuality in housing, particularly in social housing, where people tend to live slightly more cheek by jowl. And the question is, how do you persuade in the absence of any sanctions? And the ultimate sanction, of course, is the possession order. And so if you don't pay your rent or you're antisocial to an extent that you break your tenancy, the ultimate sanction is that you will lose your property. And the right balance between carrot and stick, between subsidy and pressure, between market solutions, and of course requiring people to pay their rent is always an element of markets, is is a political judgment, a difficult political judgment. The perhaps more interesting question is how much capital is allocated to the providers of social housing or how much the planning system is used to require social housing to be built as part of any development so that those who started off with the Greenfield site end up with planning permission for 200 houses as a quid pro quo have to develop a certain amount of social housing as part of that development in effect as a price of obtaining the increase in value in the land as a result of the planning permission. And that's where I think the real political tensions and political judgments are because unless we're going to move back to an environment where local authorities directly build houses, which has not been political consensus since the 19 or since 1979, then what you essentially have to do is to persuade private sector developers or through a series of mechanisms, housing, fund housing associations, to build social housing in a way that makes sense for the social housing, in a social housing market, which operates within a market. Social housing organisations are non-profit, but they're required to balance their books. And therefore, to some extent, they are also, they're reliant on the rent from their tenants to pay their staff, to meet the maintenance costs, to meet the, the finance costs, and to, and to balance their books, like any other landlord. The only di- key difference is that they have certain advantages in terms of capital advantages in terms of building to begin with, and they're not required to deliver a profit. But the balance, how, how you develop, the, develop social housing, how much social housing you develop, and how much you put a price on social housing for developers as a condition of getting planning permission, those are, those are the sort of fault lines in, in the political sense. And there where different parties make different judgments, depending on whether they are more tending towards free market capitalism or more tending towards regulated capitalism. But that's the, that's the sphere, that's the area of political debate in the UK, not a pure Marxist 
non-capitalist, non-market-based provision for housing, mm. which is great in theory, but simply doesn't work. You mentioned there the judgments that political parties have to make. What is it that influences those judgments and the decisions made? Oh, I think it's about how much they see the role of the state in supporting those for whom the market doesn't work. And you can see this as a big government versus small government issue. You can see this um, in a variety of different ways. But essentially, there are a group of people in society, take the long-term disabled, who will simply never be economically viable. And the question is, are they in, the, in Victorian times, they were required to rely on their families or in desperation, the workhouse. And through the Beveridge Report, uh, um, a series of developments, the Beveridge Report in 1942, um, the development of the welfare state in the post-war Labour government, though, to be fair, that was a, there was an element of political consensus about the, the direction of travel there. There has been a recognition that it, it is a proper role for society by which most of us mean we pay our taxes and government delivers benefits in order to maintain an acceptable standard of living and here an acceptable standard of housing for those who cannot go into the market and purchase it for themselves because of their economic position. And there's an element of the sort of the undeserving poor and the deserving poor and, and the question about how much you, you try and persuade people who could but don't and how much the perception is that there are more could but don't and, it, and, and, and so on. Um, and those are difficult political areas. But essentially the question is how big the state is, how big a state do you want and how much do you want to... Um, use taxpayers' money to fund the lifestyle or the, the living, is a better word than lifestyle, of those for whom the market doesn't work. And we in Britain perhaps sit somewhere between the American model, which has basically a very small state, where a lot of um, people live in, in abject poverty, despite it being an incredibly wealthy society, because, generally speaking, people don't see that as the role of the state, through to a sort of um, uh, uh, European social democrat model, where a higher level of taxes are acceptable, and the role of the state in as a benevolent supporter, rather than in the, in the states where it's much a position of charity, um, um, is 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 part of the sort of the norms and uh, social housing is right at the intersection of this political philosophy and different political parties in one way or another pitch themselves in the continuum between the United States and Norway and we have to make decisions about where we want to be on that continuum. Well, David, thank you. I so appreciate your time and your insights. And as for you listening, as always, thank you for spending time as well. 
If you have any questions or comments, please drop us a line on podcast at brujamarketing.com. We've got rough transcripts of all the episodes in this series on the Academy page of our website, brujamarketing.com, and that's where you'll also find links to articles and other interesting bits and pieces that I found while writing the series, should you want to have a little bit more of a read. And so on that, I shall leave you to the rest of your day, and I look forward to sharing a cuppa with you next time. Till then, have fun. <laughs>